Well, hello. It says it's like 7 o'clock, so, um, hey, want to start? Let's start. Sound like a good deal? You know, I'm glad you asked, because we do. Here we go. And uh, Bob will get those out to us. Thank you, uh, Frida. And as uh, Bob uh, passes those out, we think uh, as we uh, think about Bible study, we think about Bible truth. Man wants answers today. He uh, may think he has answers, or maybe he wants it. He doesn't know where he comes from. Doesn't know where he's going. How did he ever get here, right? And uh, ever since mankind has been around, the truth has always been there. But the problem is, is man, and man doesn't take the truth of God to be the absolute truth, and so he uh, looks elsewhere, or just has questions but has no answers. And so, uh, turn to John 18. It's in... uh, verse 37 and 38. There you have Jesus on trial, one of His trials. He's before Pilate. And uh, verse 37, Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Like that? Pilate said to him, What is truth? And I rather think that he's taking it as a cynical type view that uh, really there's no answer existing to this question. People have tried it before. They had philosophers at that time. and um, But as far as he is concerned, nobody can really come up with truth. How can you say that... Um, you really are one dealing with truth and the people will have truth. Well, there was a claim that Jesus made the night before this and this is found in His prayer, intercessory prayer to uh, the Father and uh, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Go back to the Psalms. Psalm 119. Longest chapter in the Bible, right? Go all the way to the end of that chapter, however many pages you might have to turn. About verse 160. The sum of your word is truth. Add it all up. And every one of your righteous ordinances, His word, is everlasting. So His word is truth. Everything in it is truth, isn't it? Go to Psalm 43, verse 3. And you know, truth is quite the deep subject in the Scripture because it's not enough time to cover it, at least tonight. Oh, send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. What does he say? Send out your light, your truth. We've already seen that the Word is truth. Send it out. Psalm 86, verse 11. Psalm writers had a lot to say about truth, about God's Word. 86.11 says, Teach me Your way, O Lord. I will walk in Your truth. Unite my heart to fear Your name. Teach me Your way, O Lord. Your way. O Lord, teach me that. I think of um, truth. I think of light. Uh, in the book of John, it starts off with um, light. And of course, in uh, that particular book, you see where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. We know He also says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? Well, um, speaking of truth, and you're speaking of light, uh, we're going to be talking about um, really the enlightenment that came around in the 17th or 18th century. And we will see that really in Scripture is where we get enlightened. That is it. 
that's where it is all at. Um, go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 22. This is all dealing with light or God's enlightenment to us. Daniel 2.22 It is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. So there uh, He reveals things out of the darkness, the hidden things, and of course the light dwells with Him. You know, He is the light. The light is, is there. That's just coming out of um, Daniel as He um, reveals the king's dream and He's showing where He gets the power and the knowledge to be able to interpret dreams. It was really from God. He knew that's where truth came from. So He gave glory to God before He even said anything else. And that's where we always start, isn't it? Um, go to Micah chapter 7. Verse 8 and 9. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I may be captured now. I may be underneath uh, the, the, the enemy right at the moment. But the Lord is a light for me. Verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see His righteousness. So truth, righteousness, light, it's uh, all God. That's simple, but boy, uh, the world never ever sees this truth as the light, as, as the truth. Um, while we're in the Old Testament, go to Second Second Samuel, verse chapter 22. Second Samuel 22. Just giving you a kind of a setup for what we're... Uh, going to be dealing with tonight. 2.29 For you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord, Yahweh, illumines my darkness. Here is uh, actually a psalm uh, that, that was written and recorded here in 2 Samuel. And there we see that it's the lamp, it's the light from God. He's the one that illumines our darkness. That's the right perspective. But the world can't see this as light. This is, this is it right here. Um, let's go back to Psalm chapter 18. Truth, light, why does man go looking elsewhere? Well, he's in darkness. He needs that light. 1828. For you light my lamp. The Lord my God illumines my darkness. Sounds like what we just read in Second Samuel, doesn't it? That was taken right out of a psalm there. Um, what about Isaiah? Go to uh, Major Prophet there, chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. It says, lift up your eyes. We're talking about the glory of the Lord. We're talking about um, the time, the uh, when when you think of the uh, the eternal state. When you when you think when we're living with uh, in the very presence of God and can see Him, we'll be able to see Him and His glory in its ultimate way. A glorified place. But there again, that's uh, all light. Back, uh, let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to John. And these are just a few verses dealing with this. 
it testifies, it screams that it's, this is the truth. This is the light. Very bold, but it is true. John 1, verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens... Hang on to that word, every man. Oh, by the way, I'm looking at Debbie back there. Um, remember one of your uh, songs that you used to play on piano quite a bit? Uh, you already know what it is. It's right out of the Psalms. Thy, thy word is a light unto my path and a light unto... So, and that's right out of the Psalms too, right? So in John 1, what's that? We used to do that one, I think. Um, John 9. That's the blind man chapter. Man was born blind for that particular time so that God would be glorified. And in John 9, verse 5, Jesus says, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's a bold statement an individual to come along and say, I am the light. I don't even think you even hear of Mohammed saying that, do you? Um, Buddha, did he ever say that he was the light of the world? (laughs) Jesus makes this bold claim. It all comes from him. He is that, he says. Um, One of my favorite ones is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. There's our light shining out of darkness. When He came, He came to a sinful world, didn't He? But, um, you know, He brought light. He, he is the light. Oh, there's one in Ephesians. I think this touches it off because we're going to be using that word enlightened. Enlightenment. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. This is in a prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? I pray that your eyes be enlightened. I bet you you've used that prayer for not only yourself, but for other people, haven't you? That people would have their eyes enlightened. That they would know the hope of the calling. I think that's just tremendous. That's, that's really the answer to it all. And so now, as we look at uh, I guess our is this our fourth installment? We started off with the Reformation and its battles from within, and then we saw the Counter Reformation, that being the Catholic Church, and then we looked at last week Arminianism, and now we go into an area which is moving forward as we've come from the Reformation. Um, we're now going to move into what is around the 18th century. What's that? Yeah, very humanistic. And it's working at that time. Um, Matter of fact, glad you say that because Luther debated who? Erasmus. Erasmus was a humanist, but it was more favorable uh, to to uh, get Christianity at that time than what humanism today. Usually you think of humanism as secular humanism. Whereas Erasmus tried to blend it. Um, but I think he, he probably carried it a little bit further and it was what, what it does is it always comes back to man. Man seems to be kind of on top a little bit. Maybe in control more than what, what he ought to be. And uh, that's a good point. And this, the 18th century is probably one of the most pivotal times for our time today. For the world, for Christianity, for the Reformation, it was very pivotal, very critical. Uh, You've had the Renaissance, the 14th, 15th century. Matter of fact, these are like epics 
these are like the times, the seasons that were found in Second uh, Corinthians chapter three that we talked about so much. You, you talked about uh, back weeks ago. Uh, Luke did, and um, these are the times or those seasons, those epics. I think that we can look back and see what was forming, and the whole idea in this series is we're looking back to see how we got where we are. You look at the Reformation and you go, Yoo-hoo! Things are going good. They were for a while. Things looked positive. Looked, uh, looked like there was triumph. Looked like it had happened. And then some things really countered it. And, and of course, the counter-Reformation. And then the man-centered gospel came along. Well, along comes this Enlightenment age and, of course, we, we just talked about Erasmus there. He, he stood for humanism. And uh, Erasmus is coming off of uh, Renaissance thinking. The Renaissance, there were some good things about it. It, it focused on the world. It's understanding mankind. And to a degree, that's good. But you know what man's going to do with something that is, that's, that's helpful. They will take it to an extreme. Rome, Rome set uh, the Catholicism of Rome set Erasmus up to come back to the which was very rare up to this time. We know that we had glimpses of it. But now, yeah, that's that made a huge impact there. And, of course, the debate was really over the question of the fallenness of man. And Erasmus, even though he would say, yeah, there is original sin, he would still make out man to be much better than what he really was. And that's, that's what a humanist will do. And Luther pointed to show how evil and wicked a man's heart is. And and that was the point of that. Anyway, that kind of thinking made great strides. And through Calvinism and, and uh, through the Reformation as it grew, then came the age uh, of reason. And up to this time, uh, you would say that um, Reformation has been winning. Now, it, God's truth always wins, okay? But looking at it in a in a human aspect, the the triumph of humanism is now going to come in, and it has a strong reaction against the fall of man. And we get the fall of man through scripture. We we don't have to go through all those scripture or depravity, and we know what that is. But the man's thought is an exalted view of man, and still hanging on to Christianity, but exalting man. It's that way today too, isn't it? It's still going on. It always has. Um, it's called a great divide in Western history. This what we're talking about tonight. This enlightenment. It's a great divide in church history as well. Not only in Western history, but in church history. And the forces are unleashed by this enlightenment. And uh, we'll also... Uh, mentioned romanticism that's involved too. They're still with us. There were new ideas and new forces coming on the scene. And um, so during this, you know, we've we've had uh, uh, divides before, you know, in the church, even in the Reformation. But this divide is the great enlightenment. And I think if we look at the enlightenment and romanticism, I think we'll attempt to get some understanding of these two movements and then we can see why the world has its views that it has today. It's just been shaping up all this time and uh, been very pervasive in, in the Western culture and that kind of thought. Why don't we go to the, the Lord in prayer? Father, we thank You for who You are as we talk uh, tonight about Your truth, Your light, it is really You. Uh, may You be glorified. 
And as we talk about the way that man goes, he'll always go against you. He will always walk away from the light and go into the darkness and thinking that he has the light. Thank you so much for enlightening us. And we would pray that we'd be enlightened even more by the use of your Word and your Spirit and uh, that we would honor you and hold on to this truth that we have and help us to understand further how this uh, world is being molded by um, the world, the flesh, uh, the, the devil, and how we battle it constantly ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the Enlightenment, you've got there on your outline, the smile of reason. You've got uh, Voltaire. Probably heard of him. Then there's Diderot, Thomas Jefferson. Probably heard of him. We say, what's the smile of reason? What, what's that about? Well, the most probably, I'd say the most famous figure in the Enlightenment would be Voltaire. He's a Frenchman, and uh, there was a picture of him, and you might have seen it before, where he was an old man, and if you look closely in there, you will see him smiling. Then you can also get a, a picture of uh, this man Diderot, another Frenchman. And in his, they have a picture of him, a drawing, a uh, painting. And in his portrait, uh, he's smiling. And Thomas Jefferson, in some of the um, paintings that you'll see of him, he'll be having a smile. This comes out of a, a time that at one time it was dark the dark ages for a thousand years and people really weren't thinkers and now all of a sudden the reformation which had a lot to do with people thinking again and was because of scripture and remember sola scriptura played such a key role in people being awakened enlightened and now they're on to an answer these guys are smiling because they have the answer to human life. And every problem of human life can be answered by man now. We're going to, we, we can get to that. We can reason to solve any kind of problem that we have. Positive thinkers. It's good to be thinking positive, but we're going to be fading away from Scripture. At this time, they're still holding on to a little bit. For one thing, there was the promise of science. Science is a good thing. And this all happened during the Enlightenment. If it wouldn't have been for that Enlightenment, we wouldn't uh, probably be sitting here underneath lights and air conditioning and all the things that are going on uh, in here at this, uh, at this time. Um, science was very high on the list. Uh, the uses of reason uh, in science. Science is a good thing. And one of the most known scientists was one who was a Christian, Isaac Newton. You've heard of Isaac Newton, right? And uh, quite a very critical thinker. He was born in 1642, dies in 1727, so he's in that realm. Um, a guy by the name of Alexander Pope, he's a poet, and he said, Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. They, they lay hid in the nighttime. God said, Let Newton be, and all was light. <laughs> What they're saying is that he brought all of this, um, these neat scientific things in, into the world. And this is in the Western world, right? That things are happening. The solutions can happen through science. Technological age starts. Accomplishments, blessings. Yeah. You know, it's amazing to me how the same, the same terminology that God uses that we are enlightened, and we use it and we twist it. It's going back to the darkness and the light had come out again. And what is Lucifer's name? I mean, Lucifer, what is that? Light bearer. He was as an angel. Now he's called an angel of... Yeah. He seems like he's coming from the light, right? 
<laughs> right. Now, don't take it that everything that I'm saying about the Enlightenment is wrong and it's evil and it's bad. There are good things that come out of it. Of course, we look at science here and we realize that's good. There's a progress there. There are, there are blessings that God gives. I, I, I would call it a, a common grace. And God lets man expand and he's able to do thinking, come up with ideas that man has not had before. Um, but there's a lot of setbacks, a lot of disappointments that come out of it. And a Jewish writer, a guy by the name of Chaim Potok, said this, this 300 years of modern paganism, and that's coming up close to our time there is when he wrote this, or secular humanism is probably the most creative, the most liberated, the wealthiest, the most dehumanizing, and the most murderous civilization in the history of our species. I think he's got a lot of truth there. A lot of good things there. It's creative. It's wealthy. Uh, liberated. Uh, but then dehumanizing also happened. Um, there was a progress also of philosophy. So we want to turn to our scripture in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. This is always a good answer about man's wisdom philosophy uh, philosophy means to love wisdom it's okay to have wisdom as long as we realize that all wisdom comes from God Colossians 2.8 says see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ don't let anyone take you there. Now, there there was a philosophy that goes back to the time of Christ and even before Christ. But the philosophy then at least had some kind of an anchor and it was still kind of bolted to truths of God. But the philosophy that happens during the Enlightenment is a philosophy that gets away from Scripture and then absolutely away from Scripture. And, of course, that's why it, uh, where it's gone today. But you have um, Descartes, and um, he made philosophy progress. It, it emerged there and started becoming distinct or separate from theology. Philosophy had, and even though there were philosophies back at the time of Paul and such, we know that it still goes wrong if it's not biblical, but at least there was some tie-in with, with God. You can you can look at Aristotle, uh, or even before that, uh, in uh, uh, Plato. You know, you've heard of those names. You think, wow, this is getting over my head now. I'm not trying to. It's it's uh, it, it's actually this is pretty simple. This is 101 or less than 101, 98 or something. I don't know. But uh, and my idea is not to teach philosophy. But but there were two approaches. Descartes had rationalism. And that was, he started with his own mind. Okay, he thought in his own mind. The human mind and more distinct, his mind. And so what he did is that he came up with these impressive ideas by actually his own thinking from the inside beginning with what he could think. Whatever would come to his mind and what he saw to be right, that was what truth was. Anything that he had doubts of, then it didn't it really exist. It it, it got down to the bare rock of reality. And that's how he would think his way to God. Now you notice he's not saying anything about objective truth here. He's not talking about going out and just observing. Uh, remember, God reveals what? In two ways. Direct revelation through His Word and then also through what? General revelation. Creation. And He wasn't even using that. It was what He thinks. And not what anybody else thinks. It's what He thinks is what is true. And He's quite a thinker. But the external world really didn't come into play with that. So that's the quickest way to, to explain Descartes. Uh, there was another guy 
Now Descartes would be French, right? There's another guy that would be from England. And this would be empiricism. Not rationalism, but empiricism. John Locke is his name. Anybody heard of John Locke before? Uh, He would be on the opposite end of things uh, compared to Descartes. Uh, Rather than beginning with the human mind, what he believed in is that he would go to the external world and he would observe what's there. And he would then understand what he observes. Science is something like that, isn't it? You go, you observe something, you test it, you see if it, ke- if it keeps happening over and over and over the same way, then it comes to be a fact, something that's real. It always happens that way. Oh, you always thought of uh, the example, you take ivory soap, you throw it in your bathtub, what does it do on the water? floats and you come in there the next day and you throw ivory soap in there and guess what it floats again it keeps floating it always floats it always floats scientifically we can say that it always floats because of the way it's made and how buoyancy and, and such um, but anyway that's what he'd do he observed it and he'd understand it he'd organize this data there was an external world it was kind of an experiment with everything and so there's a lot of science involved there but also in, in, in thinking and so you have one man with his eyes closed and it's all what he thinks in his mind that would be Descartes here's John Locke and he has his eyes open wide and ears he's observing what's happening out in the uh, outside world so human reason at this time is really emerging. That's what's happening. And it's good to be able to reason, you know, and be rational about things. Uh, Whether you're thinking yourself or you're organizing this data that comes from creation, there's a new focus in philosophy and the focus is on the human person. Human rationality becomes supreme in determining what people are to believe. Now you catch what's happening? Boil this all down and say, I don't know what all that means. Well, here comes down to this. It's no longer the Bible. You had the Reformation. They claimed that the Bible is the sole authority. Sola, you got five solas, right? And now... In a short time, you have these men coming along. They're determining that what people believe is what matters. And it can be from your own thinking or what you see. Uh, Newton, on the other hand, um, studied his Bible. He wrote commentaries even on the book of Daniel. A brilliant man. uh, Did quite the scientific work. And he was always having God thoughts, thinking God thoughts, and he would begin his work, his scientific work, with prayer to God that he would be enabled to think God's thoughts. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Right? We all do. I want to think the way that you want me to think, Lord. I want to respond. So, he had no problem between Bible study and scientific investigation. Modern science today, by the way, that is the start of modern science. Modern science today, though, says, you've got to throw the Bible out. Whatever science says, that's what goes. Now, the thing is, it may not be science. It may not even be tested. It may be something that somebody has just dreamed of, and all of a sudden it makes it science. That's your heart. That's your yeah, you see how all this kind of runs together. But um, so, matter of fact, one guy thought, how can a guy be so brilliant coming up with all the things he's doing and then to study the Bible at the same time? <laughs> True science realizes, that, and the Bible is not a, a science textbook. But it does have plenty of science in there. Matter of fact, science means knowledge. It means to know. Science means to know. And and the whole scriptures dealing with knowledge of God and His things and such. But uh, my goodness, you can see all sorts of things about creation and uh, what have you. Some people run it down. They'll say, "Well, say we all know that it says in the Bible that the sun sets 
We use that terminology today, don't we? But scientifically, the sun does not set. We know the earth revolves around the sun. We know scientifically. But what is? That is a saying that people use. So sometimes Scripture will use sayings that people are familiar with. And and so therefore, the Bible is not an error when it makes statements like that. And uh, that's how people get, they stumble up on that. Um, I like that, the queen of the science. It is, that's right. That's where you start, isn't it? Everything else then filters down from that, and that's the proper start. And I think Newton was around there. Now, I've heard some things that were some off-the-wall theology that Newton had, and I don't have them at my fingertips right here right now, but I can say you, tell you that you know there's a good principle that was that was really started with and many you know you think of Copernicus and some other people that uh, you know that were Christians or had biblical thought uh, today we know there's a battle between science and the Bible and uh, all of this stems from this enlightenment that we're talking about that's that's how we uh, have gotten to where we are and it's in full bloom now I mean we can see it, it not everybody bought these ideas from these people at that time but your great thinkers had it, and it developed. And you know, your, your universities really first were all religious or Christian universities, Christian seminaries, and that was it was just meant for the ones who were going to be and the, you know, the pastors and such. Later on, we know those same schools flip flopped and uh, became very liberal threw the Bible out, threw Christ out, and uh, have no Christianity in them whatsoever today. Uh, but the Enlightenment. You have a rational religion. And so it led to a new way of conceiving the Christian faith. And so they still might use Christian faith. Um, John Locke wrote a book called The Reasonableness of Christianity. And I have to agree with him. Christianity is reasonable. It is not a shot in the dark you know, it's not a blind faith, is it? We have reasonable facts. And, you know, we can base it upon uh, Christ, uh, his, uh, the, the resurrection, or these documents, uh, many thousands of manuscripts we have. We can go on and on and on. It's very reasonable. And that's a good thing that it's reasonable and rational. But what happens is that the mysteries that are in the Scripture, the miracles that are in the Scripture, prophecies that are in there that have even come true up to that time are all thrown out. And you even see a liberalism come there. You know, the Christian faith is, uh, at that time, it starts to become an enlightenment philosophy. And, um, of course, it was a kind of a new Christianity. Uh, they would say... You could take them, they would say Trinity. Now, Trinity, we know, we believe. But how far can we go in describing it? About as far as what the Scriptures say. We know it's, the Trinity is there, and it's there constantly. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all throughout, especially in the New Testament. We'll see Scripture after Scripture. We believe it. Uh, we can only get so far with it. But um, these guys... Uh, they would say that um, we can explain it because everything is reasonable. And what would happen is they explain it so much that people realized it was impossible to understand the more they tried to tell what it was about <laughs> or he was about. What happened, really, it the centrality of Christianity became moralistic, ethics, and that became up to the front. Uh, the mysteries of the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Atonement, all those deep do- uh, deep doctrines that we have, we, you know, justification by faith, all of those things. Uh, doctrines, systematic theology, uh, all of that, so important to us. To them, we don't need that. It's how we should live. How what we should do and how we should live it, that is at the forefront of Christianity today. Now, it sounds like, well, isn't that what we are? We are to be living it out. Yeah, absolutely. Sanctification. 
But that's not where we start. We start with God's truth, His enlightenment, His doctrine. And out of that, we put it into practical aspects, don't we? Well, they just saw it for your own moral reasons and and how you live that. Uh, How we should live, what we should do. Well, deism came into play. And I think we're all familiar with deism because it uh, became rooted into this nation pretty early on. Uh, You had many Christians at the very start of this nation when it got its independence anyway. This is all happening at the same time. Uh, Many Christians, but there were some that would say they were Christians, but yet they were deists. God is still there. He's here, but He's the great Creator God but he really doesn't have anything to do with us now. He's very distant. He's ruling over in some sense, but he wound up the clock, he let it go, and it's up to mankind. Now that's really what a deist was. And what is it, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, quite a few others very early on in our uh, history of, of this nation. Um, they had the promise of science. They had the progress of philosophy. Uh, God was the great geometrician. You know, you think of geometry. Of course, all about the same time is kind of interesting. The uh, uh, Freemasons uh, really were developing strongly at this time. And even George Washington was a part of it and almost all of your leaders. Right. Right. Yeah, he's involved. He's very much involved. Yeah, that's right. He's, you know, absolutely sovereign. And uh, he's in every detail. And he has a relationship with us. That's what Christianity is all about, isn't it? Us having a relationship with Christ. He gets, you know, he comes to earth and uh, he dies for us. And, you know, he becomes um, uh, in in our lives. Audrey, you you've fallen right along with that's exactly what the the problem is. They are not dealing with sin at all. Because man is elevated. Man's gonna rise higher and higher. Man is going to evolve. That's our teaching today. Man it keeps evolving. Man is getting better. Although you look in our world today realistically, man is not getting better. All you have to do is turn on the news and man tells on himself all the time. But Audrey, that that is it in a nutshell. And that's exactly where Luther and Erasmus were involved in that great debate that they had. And Luther had the book called Bondage of the Will. And he hit it really hard on. Now, uh, Erasmus would have said there was sin. Mankind has that. Even coming from a Catholic background, they believed in an original sin. Not exactly the way that we would, but at least they believed in sin. They would, you know, mention that. But uh, at this time, there really isn't much room or any room for many of these thinkers for sin at all. Matter of fact, they'd like to eradicate the whole idea. Because man can reach up and get higher and higher. He doesn't have to be stuck in that. But that's man's problem. That's what we come out of darkness. That's that's the first thing we have to know once we see you know, the holiness of God. We have to see what? Our deep darkness. Our sin. But that's it in a nutshell. That's what this whole thing's about. Yeah. Sure did. Psychology just whipped that totally out. And it has to do with your background, where you grew up, or your parents, or a number of different things, but not sin. Yeah. To acknowledge sin, you have to, in order to acknowledge sin, you have to acknowledge God. And so sin has been eradicated, so now they're not acknowledge God. And that's what they're doing. They're coming to a point here now as you get these deists, they still believe in, they would say they believe in God, Creator God, but they're giving away. And what happens, remember when I, I said earlier there were pictures of these particular people like uh, Voltaire or whatever, the smile of reason? 
develops into the frown of reason. All you have to do is go look at the artwork that started happening, and you'll definitely see it early on in the 1900s. Uh, and, but even at this time, all of a sudden, the image of man became very marred in, in the drawings and, and it affected artwork and, yeah, very distorted. They make man look elongated or, you know, the, matter of fact, don't even, it doesn't even look like a, a, a human. They, you know, the dehumanizing starts happening. What about David Hume? Well, he would be one of those that's not too sure all that's going on, you know, the, the rationalists are saying, hey, all of this is going to work. Um, he was not an Orthodox Christian at all, not at all. Um, he was an enemy of Christianity, by the way, really, and especially of miracles, anything that would be supernatural. He was an 18th century Scotsman, so this is all the same time, and he argued that you really can't trust your impressions. You can't entrust your your senses, your mind, your thinking, anything that's outside. You can't even trust that. You just there's a big gap between what is out there and what you think is out there. What you're thinking that's out there may not really be what's out there. Are you? <laughs> and this is David Hume. Uh, Matter of fact, religion at this time doesn't seem to be on a strong basis at all. Well, <laughs> you see these great minds. How terrible their minds really are. Matter of fact, they would say, the Scotsman would go along and say, "Yeah, but whenever there's a tree hanging over the walkway, as he's walking on the sidewalk, and it's hanging down a little bit, he ducks." <laughs> same same thing you're you're talking about there. That's what they would say. You know, it's hey, wait a minute. What he's saying is really not making any sense. But he says you can't know whether anything is out there or not the way you think. And I've heard of people, and you've probably done it as a kid, maybe. Well, how do we know red is really red? Maybe to me, that's what I put in my own. I bet we've all done that, and we probably even have done it recently. <laughs> I don't know. But that's that's David Hume thinking there. You know. Uh, we know that it, it, it it's obvious there there are um, tests and uh, that man has done and what's what's true is true and of course but we we think well that could just be in my thought how do we know uh, but after Hume people started becoming not so confident in things <laughs> go to Job eight eight through ten there was another guy by the name of Lessing L E S S I N G he called it the big ugly ditch between history and reason. History. He says, and see, you know, today we have the rewriters of history or they've taken everything out that was history and, so, and they'll go back to, they'll start and then maybe Marilyn Monroe. That's history to them or whatever. But, it, or they'll, yeah, but they don't want to give, like, how did our nation start? Where did it come from? What was its basis? Christianity and such, right? Well, this this guy Lessing uh, is that you can't trust history. Well, let's look in Job, Job eight eight through ten, and this is so familiar to today, isn't it? The rewriters of history. I mean, nothing's new, is it really? Job eight eight. Please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers, for we are only of yesterday and know nothing because our days on earth are as a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and bring forth words from their minds? Actually, we can learn a lot from history, can't we? Um, Bildad, I think, is speaking there and talking about uh, authorities that come from the past and all the people that you know, taught certain principles. Um, if there's been sin there, then um, got to realize that's why they're at where they're at. That's some of the counsel that he's using for Job. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. God always wants us to remember. You go back to the Old Testament, He tells them to set up stones when they cross over the Jordan River, for instance. Set up stones. Why? 
for a remembrance. Uh, we, we have, when we take communion, it's a remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. We, that means history is very important. That's why knowing history, where man has been, we can see the error of mankind. It's a good thing to have history, especially church history. It's a thing that has just been pushed aside and people think it's, it's getting over our head and we don't have to deal with that because that's the past. Well, you learn from history. No, we need to look at that. Um, that's why it's always good to keep hymns because we're identifying with brothers and sisters in Christ who've gone before us, but we're going to know them for eternity. These are brothers and sisters, and we can celebrate with them in the sense of, hey, we're drawing from a rich tradition that people are that drew from Scripture too. So we don't want to lose history in the church, even though we live in modern times. That's good, but we definitely want to have history kept. Once, once you lose history, then you have no bearings. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Anyway, we know uh, in this chapter, he says, I write these things to you. Verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That's a perfect scripture for we need to remember the past, the forefathers, and New Testament history here, and Acts, and then later on, look at church history. God didn't stop. You know, He, he didn't reveal anything written but he has revealed how he has worked through history. So there's a plug for church history, right? We're not celebrating men, but we're celebrating God as he works through there. Um, Lessing said, uh, uh, the big ugly ditch is placed between what we know now and what we read about the past. He said a report of the past, the accidental report of history is not the same thing as what happened. And then he said an account of a miracle is not a miracle. The Bible telling about prophecy is not prophecy. So there's the added problem of understanding. Whatever happened in the past to the great ugly ditch, it stands between us today. It really doesn't matter. It took place in the past and uh, that's not important. Do you see? They had this enlightenment and they're coming up with outrageous, ridiculous thoughts. Voltaire, who started with the smile... He talked about the best of all possible worlds and you know what he arrived at at the end? He was very optimistic at first about human life. Started having second thoughts. And then there was a devastation of an earthquake in Lisbon, Spain. And after that, the world and even God didn't appear so irrational. But despite that, the Enlightenment stayed on. Back in the, is that all there is? Is that, boy, does that ever they say? Keep dancing, you know, keep yeah, is that all there is? The music, yeah. So we'll just do that. Yeah. And that's where... Pretty, pretty, pretty sad. That is sad. That is really sad. And he started out so positive. And when you start that way, you can start on some things where there's a religious or a Christianity as some kind of a basis... And the more people slide away from truth of the Scripture, all those true Scriptures that we had, the more they slide away from that, they start thinking on their own. Look at the statements that they make. Absolutely foolish. Romanticism, uh, what's that? And uh, You might think, well, how romantic. But um, not necessarily that. Rousseau was like this. I feel, therefore I am. You've heard of the other guy that said, I think, therefore I am. Now we've come to the part of, I feel, therefore I am. Go to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. And here's, well, it felt so right. (laughs) 
How many times have you heard that? Oh, it is. It seems so right to me, though. <laughs> we still say it. The heart is more deceitful than all else. I want to trust my heart. But the heart, I want to follow my heart. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the answer to psychology. Psychology tries to get into the soul. Psychology is suke. Psychology. Psychology. Suke. It means to try to understand the inner man. You can't. Only God can. It says it right here. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's evil. It's wicked. It's deceitful. Look in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way, you ever heard of this one? Which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So it was going with these great thinkers of the world and the people that were following it. And so it goes today. It seems so right to me, though. You tell me what Scripture says, but I'm going to go by what I feel. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. That sounds like that. Proverbs. Then you have to think of Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, and what Scripture is about, and why why it is for what it is. I feel, therefore, I am, and um, it was the importance of feelings during the uh, the Romanticism times, which was going parallel. Really, it seems like they were at odds against each other because the one is the thinking mind, right? What we just talked about rationalism and such and then you have romanticism and it's dealing with the feelings how I feel Um, Wordsworth the poet speaks of the divinity of nature so that God is viewed as nature in a pantheistic way you say what's pantheistic? pan means everything in all God is in the rock God is in the fan God is in the wall yeah Right. This stuff was going on back in the 18th century, the 1700s. Pantheism was the direction of Romanticism. That's really where it was taking it. The 60s. That's where this all really started taking in our in our time. Uh, yeah, you had um, transcendental meditation and all of that stuff starting to come into the universities at, at that time. It's not the scientist or the philosopher, but it's the artist. So now we get to, we get to look at the artist uh, and how they played in uh, this uh, romantic setting. Feelings is all in all, sanctity of nature, but the role of the artist uh, says only an artist can divine the meaning of life. That's what they said. How about romantic religion? I'm going through this really quick because we're going to close this down. But Immanuel Kant... You heard of him? 1724. Rational, romantic philosophy. Religion. Very religious. Limits of Reason Alone is the book that he wrote. One of them. But it didn't focus on the Enlightenment reason alone, but also romantic attitudes. It's, it's taking that along the way that you're, you know, you're thinking as far as religious way is, the enlightenment, and then applying the romantic feeling attitude. Friedrich Schleiermacher. Now, Sproul talks about him a lot. Can you guys say that? I had to practice on it and I got it wrong again. Schleiermacher. Friedrich Schleiermacher. Okay. Absolute 
dependent. This is religious thinking, but what he does, and it sounds right, it's our understanding of God and the Gospel, and it doesn't come from the thinking that comes from Scripture, nor does it come from God's revealing, you know, in the Bible, but it comes from inner feelings of absolute dependence upon God. Now, it sounds right. We are to have absolute dependence upon God. But our minds has already been proven that our minds can go totally way out of what is truth. And somebody said his religion was like a dog would be the best Christian because he has a feeling of absolute dependence upon his master. That is a religion. Yep. And I never heard him, but he says you don't know Frederick Schleiermacher. And the way he said it, you know that he's going to be horrible. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely right. That is right. That's that's good. <laughs> you know what we're talking about? Subjectivism. Yeah. The Bible, and, and this is coming from the what would be known as the Christian realm. Quote. Isn't this in our church today? Doesn't this fit that Second um, um, Timothy chapter 3? All of these going on? Will you find out where we're at? So, it's how it impacts me. It's how I feel it's how I think. This is what I think. And the moment I hear that, I go, oh no. This is probably not going to be worth a plug nickel. I'd rather hear, thus saith the Lord. That became way out. It was put aside. The Bible says that's not the issue then. Uh, we've been hearing about the reformers and everything that had been going on, and look what they come. I think, I feel, I believe. They rejected all of orthodox, and eventually they became Unitarian in their theology. Unitarian came over here, and um, in America, and then the place where the the Puritans were were known. And you think of uh, Massachusetts and Rhode Island and all of that area, and the the great. Um, preachers, teachers of that time, and within a couple of generations, you had it going into uh, Unitarian theology, which means there's no sin, there's no hell, all religions are on the right road. You see where it all leads? And eventually, if you're Unitarian, what are you going to become? A universalist, which is basically the same, and then you will become an atheist or confused, an apostate. Ralph Waldo Emerson. I'm, I need to stop, but he was a theologian. He was a pastor. He was from a Congregationalist Trinitarian period, Reformed theology, and he went to a Unitarian period. He was at Harvard, and he went from Trinitarianism to Unitarianism, and then he shocked his liberal Harvard friends by rejecting the Unitarianism, and he went into Transcendentalism. That, Unitarianism looked conservative to Transcendentalism. This is the Enlightenment. This is where it went. Um, the deists, they have God, but He's still far off. Then it goes a little further away. The rationalists, they have a hard time thinking a prayer because they didn't think of God as being concerned to hear about the prayers and answer them. And uh, all of a sudden, God is really far away. That must be where they came up with that uh, game called Where's Waldo? <laughs> Waldo is. <laughs> goes along with that thought, doesn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> where's Waldo? Where's Waldo? I, I wish he was gone. Unfortunately, he lives on. Even though he died, it lives on, doesn't it? You know what this brought us to, and we'll get in. We'll just take off on this next week. Um, postmodernism. This was all modernism. 
And now some people say we've, we're not at just modernism. We now are at post-modernism. Uh, and, and we'll get into a, try to explaining that. But they first started off with trying to solve the biggest problems. Still trying to do it today. It's all mixed all together and everything. But they have a deluded heart. And people are into the romanticism and that I feel, I think, I believe... <laughs> Man, is we gooey about what he is without scripture, and that—that's really, uh, really, we're going to get into the last part, the conclusion. But I didn't think we'd have enough time, so I didn't even give another part to that. So we'll go into that, and we'll look at some more of those going into the 1800s and see how far that carried. And you can kind of see already from that outset why we're at where we're at today. Hopefully this was able to you're able to follow along with this. It's just broken down simple ways, but let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you that we can study your scripture and you enlighten us. And we have nothing to brag about, only you. And it is all for your glory. It's all by your grace. And had it not been for your grace, we would be duped to thinking some of the foolish things that are thought today by some of the intellectual minds of our time. Thank you for delivering us from foolishness. And keep us being delivered from foolishness into what is truth, to what is wisdom. And that's actually searching you out by the written Word of God. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.